welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 29. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by Tyler's free speech warrior. He just told me to call him that. Toby Young. Coming up, the blob threatened to arrest Trump. The police are somehow both woke and racist, and the libs go mental over Sweller Braverman. Plus, our top stories of the week, peak woke, and hopefully Dr. Peterson will drop by. So, Toby, let's start with this Trump arrest. As we record, he hasn't quite been arrested, but there's talk that he will be. This has been a massive story, of course. And it seems what they want to do is get him on a charge from the Stormy Daniels thing where he paid her hush money to hush up about stuff. And um, and then they're claiming that they can make this a mis- from a, take this from a misdemeanor to a felony charge where it would sort of be a campaign finance thing. Weirdly, though, it would be him financing himself. So it seems like a very thin case. There's a few things that are strange about it. One I'll just mention is that this guy, Mark Pomerantz, the lead prosecutor, said in his own book, that he would pay to prosecute Trump. He wouldn't even have to be paid. He would pay to do it. He worked for this Clinton-affiliated law firm. I don't know if they're officially affiliated, but everyone knows they are. He left them to specifically have a go at Trump. He put it in his book, and Trump's lawyer is saying that stuff he put in his book violates New York state law. So it's very, very politically motivated. We don't know what the outcome's going to be. Michael Knowles has said they should respond by arresting criminal libs. DeSantis is kind of staying out of it. He's kind of condemned it, but he's not really helped that much. And it can only be a bad thing for America. But what is your take, Toby? Yeah, well, um, yeah, as, as I understand it, um, the hush money that Trump allegedly paid to Stormy Daniels of $130,000 via an intermediary, um, that in itself is not against the law. Paying a porn star money to keep shtum about you during a presidential election campaign not against the law. Um, but um, what is against the law is um, violating federal election rules. And I think the violation is that it exceeded what candidates are allowed to contribute um, to their own campaigns. And it is designated a campaign contribution, I suppose, because, you know, paying Stormy Daniels, if indeed that's what happened, $130,000 to shut up. Um, uh, because had she spoken, that would have derailed his campaign. Um, I suppose you could s- describe that as a campaign contribution, but it sounds a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? Can you cam- can you contribute to your own campaign? Does that count if it's Trump spending the money himself? Yeah, I think I think I, d- I don't think you're supposed to. I mean, if you're a billionaire, you're not supposed to enjoy you know that advantage. I think there are still limits on campaign contributions, both from others and from yourself. Um, trying to create a level playing field, of course, not level. Um, but um, I think one thing telling against Trump is that Michael Cohen, who was then his personal lawyer, who was the intermediary that supposedly paid um, Stormy Daniels, has confessed to it and been convicted and done jail time. Um, and presumably he copped a deal, um, copped a plea, as it were, and reduced the time he's got to serve by implicating Trump. Um I think one interesting, I mean, he hasn't yet been arrested. In order to be arrested, I think he has to um, turn himself in in at a police station or at the district attorney's office in the state of New York. And he's currently at Mar-a-Lago or was, you know, when last spotted. And there's an interesting wrinkle, which is if he refuses to leave Mar-a-Lago, then the New York district attorney will have to try and extradite Trump from Florida to the state of New York so he can be arrested. Um, uh, and the person who'll get to decide whether to extradite him would, of course, be Ron DeSantis. So I, what would Ron DeSantis do in that situation? Would, it, would he sort of um, extradite Trump 
immediately. Uh, so Trump can be arrested and his campaign presumably slightly discredited. Um, or would he think it would be better if Trump is kind of hiding out in Mar-a-Lago, looking like he's too frightened to leave his home because there's an arrest warrant out for him in New York State? I think it might be better from a political point of view for DeSantis to refuse the extradition request, um, uh, partly because, you know, I guess... Uh, it, make, it makes it difficult for Trump to campaign. If he, I mean, he, the moment he goes to another state, then the New York District Attorney presumably can apply for an extradition order from, you know, the state of New Hampshire if that's where Trump is campaigning. So, it does make it difficult, make things difficult for Trump. I, I mean, I guess you know, I'm I'm a big DeSantis fan, and I hope he gets the nomination. And I think Trump is a distraction, and I think if he gets it, um, I think he's less likely to win in spite of what the polls say, uh, than DeSantis. And I think DeSantis would obviously be a much better president. Um, so, you know, I, I was, I'm quite enjoying Trump's discomfort. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very Toby. I mean, I'm team Trump. I mean, DeSantis just doesn't have the charisma. We've been over this before. DeSantis just, yeah, he is good and smart. He's just not on Trump's level. It has to be Trump and Trump has to come back and get vengeance but it is very interesting that it's up to DeSantis. It's like a kind of succession plot or something. It's some kind of Netflix series or something. But I, And DeSantis has been quite on the fence about it. He's said things like, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star, but you know, but he's sort of saying this whole thing's silly, but I, I don't get involved. What he could have done, and people are saying he should have done, is come out straight away and said, I wouldn't extradite him and just make a stance because it should be bigger, shouldn't it, Toby, than party politics. I mean, this is about whether America is going to be a country where you just try to get your opponents arrested. I mean, everyone's admitted pretty much no citizen, no ordinary citizen would be arrested for this. It's just, you know, misdemeanor. And they're purely trying to, it's politically motivated, obviously. And this also, the idea of uh, paying hush money to a porn star, that, that's a slow Tuesday for Hunter Biden. So it depends which side you're on. You know, the Bidens can just do anything and get away with it. That's why Knowles was saying we have to fight fire with fire. Find Dems, Democrats that have done some sort of crime, not innocent ones, but ones that have done some minor crime and just throw the book at them. And isn't that just how it's going to end up going? I mean, because I think it's, people are, I think, oh, so that, I think that, 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 that horse has bolted. I mean, I think, um, using, you know, lawfare, um, in American politics, dates back to the beginning of the Republic. Um, we saw it in the case of Bill Clinton before that. We saw it in the case of Richard Nixon. There are, I think, some cases, or some cases in the 19th century. So this is, you know, it's part of the bread and butter of American politics. It's not a new low. It's not like the Democrats have broken the rules by, you know, using lawfare to try and get, get at Trump. I mean, he wouldn't hesitate to do it, given half a chance either. Well, you think he wouldn't hesitate, but he, he said, lock her up, lock her up. But he didn't actually lock anyone up, did he? It was more just rhetoric. It was a slogan. I think it is a, a low. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not an entirely new low. There, there was one president that campaigned from prison, apparently, in the early 20th century. But um, tricky to campaign from prison. I'm, I'm surprised you're, <laughs> you're so relaxed about it. I mean, the, the, one thing is how to respond because there's a danger that entices people into a new January 6th. One sort of what quickly became a cliche to me going around was that Elon Musk said it, Scott Adams said it, loads of people said, if this happens, Trump wins a landslide. Now, I don't think that happens at all, personally. One, because whenever I see a lot of people just saying the same thing, I immediately doubt it. But I don't think it says that at all, really. They're saying that people will be so infuriated by this, they'll come out and vote for Trump. I think, really, Trump fans will still vote for Trump. Haters won't vote for him. And really, the election will come down to, as I've said before, who manipulates it best, who does the best ballot harvesting and the best mail-in ballots, because that's how the Dems won it last time. If we, Even if we leave aside claims of whether it was fraudulent, 
There was election techniques that went on. This is why we had an unprecedented, you know, numbers of voters. They were accepting ballots that would normally be spoiled. They were mailing in stuff. They were ballot harvesting. To me, that's how it's going to be won. That's my cynical take on that. But do you really think this means a Trump landslide? No, I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, I would have thought that Trump, you know, and by the time this is broadcast, it may all be clear, but I would have thought he will, you know, turn himself in, get arrested, and then try and make as much political capital out of it as he can, and to try and make sure it rebounds in the Democrats' faces. And maybe he'll succeed in doing that. He's, you know, he's quite gifted at that kind of jujitsu. Um, but um, on the other hand, you know, I think it's it's not going to attract many floating voters, many moderate Republicans to kind of endorse Trump over Ron DeSantis um, in the primaries. Um, I still think Trump's got a battle ahead of him, uh, even though he's the front runner at the moment. And I'm not sure this will make a, a critical difference. One aspect of it that I don't quite understand, but you may be able to throw some light on, is that some people have suggested that Trump's request that people come out and protest if he's arrested is a kind of is a form of entrapment. And actually, the fifth columnists, the rabble rousers, the Democratic agents will be out in force if Trumpists are out there protesting, trying to encourage them to riot in the hope that they can repeat January the 6th and, you know, embark on another crusade against misinformation and disinformation on social media, trying to discredit Elon and the rest of it. Um, but, but why would Trump be complicit in that plan? I mean, I haven't quite got that, but that doesn't add up. Uh, no, I don't think Trump would be complicit in it, but he might just, he just might recklessly say, everyone should come out and protest this. And then that might escalate and play into the Dems' hands. I don't think it's, Trump would ever be complicit in it, would he? It's just saying that it might be a, it might be playing into their hands. But who was someone was arguing that he would actually be complicit in that in the No, I, I just I, I, I haven't really been following it too closely, to be honest. I just noticed that there was kind of uh, warnings on Twitter that, you know, be careful if you go out and protest about this, that you're not uh, led astray by, you know, secret agents in the crowd. Yeah, that's one danger. And the Telegraph ran with this kind of quite cookish piece. They they ran a piece sort of they, they just went been on one website and it was always people saying, Yeah, we've got to come out and protest. And they were obviously DeSantis fans like you at the Telegraph. They just come out and Basically saying, yeah, everyone's going to violently protest. Whereas the polls I looked at on Twitter and things, people were saying, no, let's not protest. A small amount were saying, let's protest. Because, yeah, they're, they're wary of another Jan 6, which could easily happen. And, yeah, there'll be agents out there helping it along, no doubt. I am very, very cynical. I'm surprised you're not more bothered about this, Toby. I mean, I knew you were DeSantis over Trump, but I'm surprised you're not more bothered about Because to me, it's part of a, a trend where they arrested Roger Stone at dawn with a ridiculous SWAT team and they, they put... Peter Navarro in leg irons, and they've arrested Bannon, and he's, you know, and well, all I these. Well, I mean, kind it's, of- uh, yeah, but, uh, I mean, why aren't you more bothered about the fact that you know um, Trump slept with a porn star and then paid her one hundred thirty thousand dollars, you know, hush money? I mean, isn't isn't that isn't that quite upsetting if you care about the integrity of the democratic process as well? Because, I think it's a, you know, if if that actually happened, yeah, because on the scale of things. You're, you're, you're a billionaire New York real estate guy who's gone into politics and that's what the worst thing they can find on you. It's, you know, they've really been trying to find stuff. It's not that bad, is it? But when Hunter Biden is just doing absolutely mad stuff and it's all being suppressed, I mean, yeah, it's not ideal. We know Trump's not ideal. No one thinks he's a moral paragon, but I, just, I don't know. I think it's far more worrying that, to abuse the, uh, you know, the organs of the state or whatever. We already know the Russia, we've had the Russia hoax. We've had the failed indictments. Isn't it just banana republic stuff? Well, I think there's, you know, but I think um, 
American politics has always been uh, characterized by 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 this kind of low skullduggery. It's part of the it's part of the you know the joy of following American politics closely. That you know there are Nixon burglars everywhere, not just in the Watergate Hotel. Um, you know it's it's a sleazy, seedy um, business and has been for two hundred plus years. Um, I'm not shocked shocked to discover you know that the Democrats are using lawfare to try and get at Trump. All right. Well, I tried. The listeners can decide whose side they're <laughs> on. It's going to be mine. But I know, well, some of them are DeSantis fans and our listeners over Trump, but I think they'll agree with me well, on this. Well, I just this. think DeSantis see. got, DeSantis, you know, he was so much better on lockdowns and now vaccine injuries. And he's good on, you know, the teaching of critical race theory and gender identity ideology in schools. I mean, he's good on a range of issues that I care about. And, and he and he positioned himself in the right place long before Trump, who kind of wobbles around and seemingly doesn't have any kind of guiding principles. I mean, he just seems much more grown up and sensible. And, you know, to me, the future of conservatism, not some kind of orange haired man heading for his 80s with kind of being followed around by porn stars asking for money. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, just, he, he doesn't seem... <laughs> Yep. You can certainly make the DeSantis case. The case I'm saying where I'll win on is whether this is terrible from the Dems and whether they're just destroying America, you know, with this case, whatever you think of Trump. And I think uh, I'm, I'm right on that. But um, all right, so let's move on to our second story, which is our friend Suella Braverman, who's been going pretty viral on Twitter with her picture. Now, this was this was absolutely mad. She did this picture. It was about the Rwandan policy and so on. She was she was checking out the, the scenery and she was having a laugh with two people, two black people, incidentally, who were then cropped out of the photo by Twitter libs to make it look like she was laughing demonically at the idea of sending people off to Rwanda. And this was shared by all kinds of people, from James O'Brien to Simon Sharma to Anna Subri and many more. And then to go even one step further, someone replaced the background with a picture of Auschwitz. And this came from the, not directly from the site Newsthump, but Newsthump said, meme this photo, the real photo, and then people replied with all these memes. Of course, one of them was the Auschwitz one, which was then shared by Steve Bray, famously annoying anti-Brexit ranter. And it just went completely out of control. And then I did a tweet that's done pretty well. I said, today, the people on the right side of history didn't like to see someone sharing a joke. So they deleted some black people from a picture and added an image of a concentration camp, all completely normal. Wasn't this just absolutely gross from the Twitter libs, Toby? Yes, it was. Um, but clear something up for me. Was was she originally, was she standing in front of the kind of residential facility, let's call it that, that um, undocumented migrants who arrive on small boats will, God willing, in due course, be transported to in Rwanda? Uh, I don't think it was just any old building. She was joke, sharing a joke with two black colleagues in front of what is going to be um, the facility where undocumented migrants who cross the channel um, end up being housed, isn't that right? I believe and, and, so. And, yeah. and then, yeah, and 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 um, so the the so that so the reason for cropping out the two black people and just making it appear as though she was laughing demonically is she was laughing demonically in front of the quote unquote internment camp where um, poor refugees are going to be 
imprisoned um uh, and she was laughing at that prospect that was the kind of that was the kind of i guess that was the that was the point but i agree um first of all it was kind of uh, an example of illegitimate political point scoring to crop out the two black people and make it look as though she was just laughing at the prospect of imprisoning these poor refugees but secondly you know all the same people who complained about how shocked they were when um andrew bridgen um, quoted a cardiologist describing the vaccine rollout as a crime, the worst crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Um, uh, all those people who were shocked that Andrew Bridgen would trivialise the Holocaust in this way to score a political point, um, you know, um, uh, uh, immediately started retweeting the meme in which the internment facility was replaced by Auschwitz, um, which seems to be a, a far more egregious example of trivializing the Holocaust for cheap political point scoring purposes than the analogy in Andrew Bridgen's tweet that he then took down. But he was, he was, you know, he lost the whip um, as a result of that tweet, hasn't yet regained the whip. Um, and, you know, there was this huge pile on. I mean, we saw the hypocrisy in the case of uh, Gary Lineker. Fine for Gary to do it, just not okay for Andrew Bridgen to do it. But then this is an even more egregious example, I think, of those double standards. Yeah, I mean, it's very much doing what Lineker accused the government of, but they would say, no, we're satirically responding to the government being like that. The government are Nazis, and we're sort of merely pointing out, it's like, no, you're actually the one creating weird Nazi images. So it depends which side you're on. But yeah, I think even... I think even relative. I think this is so, so bad that I think all kinds of people have condemned the Steve Bray photo. The actual, the cropped photo of just Suella laughing, but not with our switch. That's been that's been shared by people like James O'Brien. And let's be honest, people and people have responded saying, "Why are you sharing misinformation?" They would, if anything like that was done the other way around, they would totally call that misinformation because people say, then people are coming back. It's just an edited photo. Why it's still bad? Why is it misinformation? It is misinformation because it. it it changes the image completely. Sharing a joke with colleagues versus laughing demonically on your own is just such a mm. different image that it is. A, isn't that a kind of misinformation? I think it is. It is misinformation. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's. I think it actually may even fall into the category of disinformation. So the distinction is misinformation. You say something false or misleading, but when you say it, you're not aware that it's false or misleading. So it's not deliberately misleading. But with disinformation, you're aware that it's false and or misleading and you disseminate it anyway um, because your object is to deceive people. And I guess so the question is, you know, was James O'Brien aware that the photo had been cropped and that this image was deeply misleading? Um, and I suspect he probably was, but didn't care. So that's disinformation. It's worse than misinformation. Right. And let's not get, get sued and just say, or maybe... He didn't know, and it was merely misinformation. <laughs> but either way, it wasn't. It wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't yeah, because we don't know. We don't know if he knew or not. But but you know, it wasn't great. By the way, by the way, are, yep. are you familiar with this new category? Uh, it's uh, it's like a third category, which is malinformation. And malinformation is it's it's um, information that's true, but. Um, uh, people want to suppress it anyway because um, it might lead to antisocial behavior of some kind or it might support a um, narrative that supposedly will undermine public health or confidence in our institutions. So um, this was a concept invoked by um, the uh, 
graduate students at Stanford in their virality project, which, yeah. which we've decided we won't talk about today because neither of us have done our homework on it. But one thing <laughs> I did pick up is that they thought it was perfectly justifiable to suppress true information about vaccine harms on the grounds, not that it was misinformation or disinformation, because how can it be if it's true, but because it was malinformation. So this is a way of trying to stretch the concept of mis slash disinformation even further so it encompasses information which is actually true um, and justifiably suppress it anyway. It's a bit like um, the Global Disinformation Index. Um, it came up with, instead of coming up with a new category, malinformation, it just defined disinformation so broadly as to include true information that supports adversarial narratives. And adversarial narratives are narratives which supposedly pose a threat to vulnerable, historically disadvantaged groups. So Breitbart, for instance, was censured by the Global Disinformation Index, which is funded by the Foreign Office, incidentally, censured for running stories about illegal migrants who'd committed crimes. And they said, this is disinformation, not because it isn't true. It's true. These stories are true. Um, but because it creates the impression that more illegal migrants commit crimes than they really do. Um, uh, and therefore, it's supporting a, a narrative which adversely affects refugees. And so therefore, you can ban it and call it disinformation. Incredible. I know, absolutely shocking. And like you say, this was a big theme of the Virality Project, which we didn't feel we knew in enough detail. But yeah, there were things like worrisome jokes even. And yes, true posts which could fuel hesitancy. Anything that's against establishment narrative that is a malinformation, fully Orwellian, absolutely deranged. And um, just while we're talking about things we've forgotten to include in the show, you mentioned Bridge in there, and we'll have all sorts of emails if I don't mention Bridge in. And I put the Bridge in speech in the news roundup for the Daily Skeptic because people were asking, why aren't you talking about Bridge in? We are. And do you have anything briefly, briefly to say on that? It just occurred to me that he did that speech in the House of Commons, House of Commons about vaccine harms, and was everyone left the chamber and were actually encouraged to leave the chamber, it looked like. Yeah, I had a big argument with James about this on um, oh, okay. London Calling yesterday. So at the risk of boring people who listen to both podcasts, um, my position is um, it, it was shocking that the House of Commons chamber was so empty when Andrew Bridgen was making that speech um, and shocking that it emptied even further when he began speaking. And if Andrew Mitchell, ex-cabinet, minister really was trying to encourage people to leave the chamber, then that's pretty shocking too. But I'm slightly hesitant to accuse him of that. There may be a perfectly innocent explanation. Remember, he was the Conservative MP accused of calling a police officer standing outside Downing Street a pleb in what became known as Plebgate. And I always thought that he was probably innocent of that crime, but he was convicted in the court of public opinion, I thought unfairly. So I'm a bit loath to kind of convict him again without knowing all the evidence, without having heard his side of the story. Um, but pretty shocking. It's an important issue. It should be debated in the House of Commons. It should have been covered in the mainstream media. But my disagreement with James wasn't over that. It was over, well, why didn't it get more coverage? Why was the House of Commons chamber so empty? Why did people leave when he began talking? And James was invoking, as per a diabolical conspiracy led by Bill Gates and others. And that seemed to be a kind of uh, theme on kind of sceptical Twitter, too. 
um, you know, people posting pictures of Andrew Mitchell standing next to or shaking hands with Bill Gates in one of his attractive jumpers. Um, and uh, and I said to James, you know, you don't need to invoke this diabolical conspiracy. The reason people are reluctant to discuss vaccine harms is because so many, you know, um, uh, members of the elite, whether it was in the public health establishment in Whitehall, in 10 Downing Street, in government, um, in medical schools, and so forth. So many of them went all in on the vaccines. They embraced the vaccines as our way out of the lockdowns. They thought it was a fantastic technological and administrative triumph. They seem that you know, a lot of their political credit, their professional reputations are contingent on the vaccines being this kind of miracle cure, this, this fantastic panacea that saved us all. And they overstated the case for the vaccines. They underestimated the vaccine harms. And that's their reason for not wanting to listen to Andrew Bridgen and not wanting to give him the time of day, not because they've been enlisted in some diabolical conspiracy to suppress information about vaccine harms, because it's just embarrassing. I think it was Mark Twain that said it's easier to sucker someone than it is to persuade them they've been a sucker. You know, it's anchoring bias. If you've initially taken a position, it's very difficult for people to get you to change your mind. That's why they don't want to discuss it. You don't need to come up with this fanciful theory um, which is, to my mind, totally implausible and for which there's very little evidence for, um, to explain this kind of behavior, this suppression of a speech about vaccine harms. It's totally understandable for elementary human psychological reasons. Well, yeah, I agree. And I would also add a simpler explanation. I mean, I like Bridgen. I've interviewed him. You can listen to that on my other podcast, The Current Thing, if you, if you want to go and listen to my interview with him. And I was impressed by him. But it's even simpler as well, isn't it? It's just he's become a leper now in the party. He's basically semi-booted out of the party. They don't want to associate with him in any way. Yes, the vaccines, they want to keep the vaccine narrative going, but they also just want to have nothing to do with Bridgen, who's thought of as now a kooky sort of red-pilled nut, and they just want to sort of stay away from him and, and make it clear that they're not endorsing it in any way. Isn't it also just that simple? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's like um, they don't want to be contaminated by association. They want to put as much distance as they can between them and him, because as you say, he's become this kind of social leper, certainly within the corridors of the House of Commons. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on and do this story about the police, which we covered on Headliners last night, and which you've been fairly involved with, with the Free Speech Union. And the Times picked this up, and it was police failing to teach officers importance of free speech. And it's and the FSU's claim was basically they're ignoring Article 10 which is concerned with freedom of expression. And instead, they're teaching them a load of woke rubbish about the gender-bred diagram and all this kind of thing. And the FSU said that of the 32 forces in England and Wales that responded to it, 25 were providing no or inadequate training on Article 10. So it looks as though police have just been taught, of course, we know they've been taught all this inclusivity nonsense because they're probably just young men who are trained to listen to authority, they, or young men and women. They just go along with it. And they go, yeah, okay, we'll believe that. They get into these non-crime hate incidents, which we've covered before, hundreds of thousands of them recorded since 2014. That one against Amber Rudd in 2017 when she was the Home Secretary, absolutely absurdly. So they get, they get sucked into all this. While weirdly on the front page, there were, there were stories that the police are homophobic and racist, which has been found by that Casey report because their banter is homophobic and racist. So basically what's happening is they're doing all this useless woke training. Behind the scenes, they're still kind of just typical police having a kind of edgy, probably inappropriate banter. Then, of course, there's all the really dark stuff about the Wayne Cousins type people, which is awful. 
But there's what's going on, Toby, is it seems like in, they're officially following all this rubbish, torturing citizens with non-crime hate intents, behind the scenes having dodgy WhatsApps, and they're in trouble for both simultaneously. Yeah. Um, I, so the Free Speech Union um, has just published this report, and people can read it on the homepage of the... Well, they can read a summary, and there's a link to the report the report in full on the homepage of the Free Speech Union's website, which is freespeechunion.org. Yeah, and we FOI'd all 41 police forces in England and Wales to try and find out um, what police officers were being exposed to in training. Um, and um, we discovered that 78% of the police forces that responded to our FOI requests uh, are either teaching the police nothing about the legal protections surrounding free speech or incredibly little one line uh, whereas of course um, they're teaching them just voluminous amounts of material about equity diversity and inclusion and one of the reasons um, all this diversity training is given to the police is because you know various reports of which this Casey report into the Metropolitan Police is just the latest are constantly exposing the homophobia misogyny racism of police forces. Um, so people think, oh, there's a problem, canteen culture, look what happened with the Stephen Lawrence affair. Um, uh, look at these riots in Brixton, blah, blah, blah. The police need to be trained in given diversity training, uh, taught about unconscious bias, um, given anti-racism training and the rest of it. Um, and to me, what, what, what the Casey report this one that came out on the front pages today tells us is that none of this diversity training is is having the slightest bit of impact, um, and and it's sort of um, it's misdiagnosing the problem with the police. I mean, the liberal establishment seems obsessed, absolutely obsessed, and has been for more than twenty five years in exposing supposedly the racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia of the police, and that seems to be their principal concern that people in minority groups are being discriminated against by the police. They're underrepresented in forces like the Metropolitan Police. Um, people, young black males, are more likely to be stopped and searched. Um, they're more likely to receive custodial sentences when they're accused of crimes and so on and so forth. This is the ongoing obsession. And it's like for ordinary people, um, that's not the issue. The issue is that the police have stopped solving crimes. That's the issue. You know, They're so busy now policing our tweets. They're no longer have any time to police our streets. What bothers people is when they get burgled or their car's broken into or their son gets mugged on the way back from school. They, kill, they call the police and the police couldn't give a fig. At best, they'll give them a crime reference number. They've got no interest in investigating you know, the crimes that are you know, making everyone's lives miserable. Um, and yet they're absolutely obsessed with you know, protecting the feelings of these supposedly disadvantaged groups and trying to uh, combat bias and prejudice in the police force. It's just, it's just, it's it's getting a, the priorities, I think, in all the wrong places. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Suella Braverman is absolutely right to issue this new draft code of practice, to try and discourage the police from recording almost every report of politically incorrect speech or behavior as a non-crime hate incident against people's names. Um, uh, and she said, you know, it says in this new draft code of practice, the police need to be mindful of the legal protections that are in place 
uh, for people's free speech. You know, um, uh, they're constantly overreaching. They're constantly prioritizing, protecting the feelings of these supposedly vulnerable, disadvantaged identity groups, which they're constantly taught about uh, in their training sessions. They're prioritizing those over ordinary citizens' right to free speech. They can't be more mindful of the legal protection for free speech if they're taught almost nothing about it in these training courses. And the worry, of course, about this Casey report is it'll just lead to another series of calls for even more diversity training. That'll be the solution proposed. That'll be the solution that Keir Starmer comes up with if, God forbid, he's the prime minister in 12 months' time. It's like, oh, we need we need to give the, the police even more diversity training. That's the way to tackle this problem. It's like, no, it isn't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and when I was mugged, got my phone nicked, and people just they just drove off on a moped. Yeah, you call this one o whatever it is number that doesn't do anything. Then you email, you just get a generic email. They never even followed it up, and people have obviously way worse examples than that. They don't. You know, nothing is going to be followed up, and it does it does pose an interesting question. Would you rather a, a, a policeman came to your house after a burglary, even if they're secretly racist? Imagine a policeman comes to your house and he. He's like, and he lately WhatsApps his mate. Oh, I went to this honky's house today to absolute cracker. And he hates, he hates your race, which in this case is white people, but whichever race you are, but he actually investigates the crime, but in a secretly racist way, racism him in his heart, but it doesn't actually impact his investigation of the burglary. Would, would you accept that? Yeah. I, I, I mean, if he, guessed, <laughs> if he caught the burglar, I really wouldn't give a fig. Um, uh, what I mind is the fact that they don't have any interest at all when you call them up and tell them you've been burgled. And, you know, they've, they've completely trashed your house. They've defecated on the hearth rug. Um, they've scrawled graffiti over your teenage daughter's bedroom. They've urinated in the fireplace. It's like, yeah, well, here's a crime reference number. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. It's, but are, you, are they secretly racist? Yeah, well, I'm with you on that <laughs> one, Toby. It, it, it's, it's gross what's happened to our police. I don't know. I'm feeling pretty bleak, bleak about it. I don't really see it getting much better. Maybe Suella will do something and then everyone will shout at her on Twitter. I don't know. That seems to be how it goes. But she, she, she did put in that code of practice we talked about last time, didn't she? Mm. Has that done anything? Yeah, and I think if... Well, it, it, it hasn't yet been... It needs to be approved by both Houses of Parliament. But when it is, I think it will help things a bit. It'll make certainly make it easier if if you have a non-crime hate incident recorded against your name uh, by the police to get it removed. Uh, and the Free Speech Union can help with that. Um, but the police are unbelievably promiscuous when it comes to handing out these, these was like parking fines. Um, you don't get fined, but it does go on what is effectively your criminal record because it shows up in enhanced criminal records checks and it may stop you from getting a job as a carer or a teacher or whatever. Uh, so they are a real deterrent. They really do have a chilling effect on free speech and it's all completely one-sided. If you, if you, if you started criticising crackers and honkies, chance of you having an NCHR recorded <laughs> against your name on zero. <laughs> I'm sick of personally of these crackers and honkies. But um, <laughs> all right, that's the police. Do you want to have a quick look at the SMP? I don't actually have this one in front of me, but it's the ongoing implosion of the SMP. And we did cover it last night again on GB. And 40, they lost 40% estimated of their members. There's something like they had a figure registered before that was like, it was 125,000. Now it's like 70,000 or something. And of course, Sturgeon's gone and her husband's gone. And they're in a complete free fall. Sturgeon was saying these are growing pains. And it's like, they're really shrinking pains, aren't they, Nicola? She was trying to put a brave face in it. <laughs> I've already written the article for the Daily Skeptic a while ago. Is this the Berlin Wall moment for wokeness and for the SNP? And, and although I'm, I'm sort of neutral on independence, and if Scotland wants that, I accept that. But currently they don't. But this shows to me how quickly, if you follow these absurd gender ideologies, the Isla Bryson's case, isn't it that it's just completely 
wipe them out. And obviously then Sturgeon going and the domino effect. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's absolutely glorious. I mean, um, I know from, you know, having spent a bit of time in Scotland, having set up the Free Speech Union office in Scotland, taken on quite a lot of cases of Scottish people who've got into trouble for, you know, um, exercising their perfectly lawful right to free speech. Um, the atmosphere in Scotland is so oppressive. It's so unpleasant. It's uh, it, it, it reminds me of, you know, East Berlin um, before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was embodied in the kind of oppressive figure of this kind of hatchet-faced, humorless, dour scold in the form of Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and um, to see her, first of all, be forced from office for for what was effectively woke overreach, um, uh, and now to see her husband forced from office too, um, and the seemingly the implosion of the SNP. I mean, it's just it's just um, glorious on so many fronts. Um, but 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 there've been calls by um, I think um, uh, one of the candidates in the leadership election um, to rerun the election because. Um, Part of uh, Humza Yousaf's um, campaign has been he is the continuity candidate. You know, things must carry on as they are um, because we are such a fantastic party doing such a great job. We're on course to win the next parliamentary election and the Holyrood election. Um, uh, and, and they're saying, well, hang on a second. Now we know that not everything was rosy in the garden. You know, um, people may have voted for Humza while the election has been running, imagining that they were and thinking continuity, that's a good idea. Now people will have to reconsider that, knowing what a pitiful state our party is in. Um, so I think there's quite a good case for rerunning the election. And whatever the result is, it's probably legally challengeable. But obviously, I hope that um, the SNP won't rerun the election, that Humza Yousaf will win it, and then he'll immediately be successfully challenged in the courts and have to the election will then have to be rerun. It'll just be chaos for months to come, leading right up to um, the general election, in which I hope... I mean, of course, the risk is that um, if the SNP do very poorly, then the beneficiaries will not be the Tories, it'll be Labour, and that will make it easier for Keir Starmer to win an overall majority at the next election. But, you know, I think that's a, that, that, that for me is an acceptable price to pay to see the complete destruction of the SNP because they were such um, an illiberal authoritarian political party. I mean, Scotland has been now for years a one-party state. Um, and uh, that toxic combination of ethno-nationalism and extreme wokery is a really nasty cocktail, um, uh, making so many people's lives absolutely miserable. Um, so, um, and Humza Yousaf, this fantastic thing, he, he said that he didn't accept Isla Bryson uh, was a real trans woman because he's a convicted rapist. And it's like someone has reported him for, for, for hate crime under his own law, the Scottish Hate Crime and Public <laughs> Order Act. He's <laughs> lucky for him. It hasn't been activated yet because the Scottish courts and police have said, the moment you activate this, we're going to be completely overwhelmed. So don't activate it. Um, uh, but uh, if, it, if it was, you know, if it, if, it, if it was, if it had been activated, I imagine he could be prosecuted um, <laughs> for saying that because you can't say that kind of thing. We won't be able to say that sort of thing in Scotland thanks to Holmes's law. Yeah, that's amazing. That guy's a stone cold moron. Um, but as you say, yeah, Tom Harris has written a piece in The Telegraph, the, this SNP implosion will put Labour in number 10. So that is the risk. As you say, perhaps a price worth paying, especially if Labour probably going to win in some way anyway. And, you know, if they had, I mean, if Kate Forbes seems all right, 
So if she led a completely different party, they seems like they could be all right. But that would be such a different. I mean, I don't know how she's doing at the moment, but that would be such a different party anyway. Presumably, if she was leading. And it, what do you think? Do you like her, or do you just do you just want to see the whole party destroyed? Well, I mean, I, I think the I think I think she would be a more effective leader than um, Humza, and um, probably do better um, at elections than him. Um, but um, but the upside of her being elected is that the party would inevitably split. So it's already split between the SNP and Alba, but I imagine there'd be a third breakaway party. And, that, you know, that, from an electoral point of view, that's fantastic. Um, you know, the, if, what we want is the nationalists to be divided between, you know, if possible, three different political parties all running against each other, all knocking six shades of shite out of each other during election times. I mean, it would be just marvellous entertainment and uh, uh, great for the union. Yeah, I mean, if a non... Basically, what I'm saying is if a non-woke Christian... Independence Party emerged, I'd be fine with that. You, you want an independent Scotland, not in the EU, and you're Christians and you're not woke. I'd be like, that's all right. I don't mind that. But yeah. All right. Well, that's the SNP. Do you want to quickly do Boris? I haven't actually, I don't know where I've been this week, but I haven't actually managed to read up much on Boris either, but he's in a bit of, bit of a pickle. Yeah. So this, this story is sort of breaking as we speak. So um, Boris is giving evidence to the committee investigating him um, in the House of Commons for supposedly breaching the COVID rules. And um, him and Dominic Cummings have started kind of trading um, insults. Um, so Boris's defence, I think, it, 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 I think the, the 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 episode in question is um, a, a supposed party that took place in Downing Street on May twentieth, when the first lockdown was in place. Um, and did the party break the rules or not? Well, that's not the issue. I think. You know, Sue Gray's investigation concluded that that party did break the rules and people who attended that party had been fined. The issue is when Boris stood up before Parliament and said, I never knowingly broke the rules. Um, was he deceiving? Was he misleading Parliament? Um, and his defence is, I checked with an advisor before attending this event and was told it wouldn't be a breach of the rules. Um, and Dominic Cummings is is countering that by saying, no, you checked with me and I advised you it would be against the rules. And you also checked with Lee Kane and he too advised you it would be against the rules. And you ignored that advice and went ahead and did it anyway. So when you stood up in front of Parliament and said you had no idea, uh, you didn't think you'd ever broken the rules, um, uh, you were lying. Um, and so that's that's sort of the issue that the committee, I guess, has to decide. But um, I guess if uh, I don't think Dominic Cummings is able to produce the WhatsApp message in which he supposedly advised Boris not to attend this party because it would be against the rules. If he could produce it, he would have produced it by now, unless he's going to dramatically unveil it later this afternoon. Uh, and I imagine if Boris is relying on the defence that he was advised by one of his advisors that it wouldn't be against the rules, that he may be able to produce that email or that WhatsApp message. I don't know. Maybe he's going to rely on the fact that the, there's no counter evidence that Dom and Lee can't produce the evidence that this is the advice they gave him. Um, so, you know, I, it looks as though, it look, I think Boris will probably get, you know, a wrist slap, so like a 10-day suspension, but not be prevented from running again at the next general election. And I think I think that's probably the right outcome. Um, uh, I think if... If 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 the punishment was more severe, I mean, who knows? It might be. Um, you know, it would it would fuel kind of grievance and resentment amongst Boris supporters, amongst people who voted for Boris and who would still like to be him to be PM. It would feel like yet another deep state coup, officials colluding with 
political enemies to bring down, you know, a titan. Um, so uh, I hope he, I hope, I hope, I hope that is how it resolves itself. You know, a wrist slap, but not anything more serious. Okay, I don't, I don't have loads to contribute because I've not really been following it. So we have an ad, I believe, from our old friend Thor. Yeah, let's hear from Thor. Mark Twain said, "Buy land; they're not making it anymore." He was correct, of course. Investing in land is indeed a good plan in these turbulent times. Just ask Farmer Bill Gates. But time is also a solid investment class. In fact, it's arguable that time is the most precious asset we all get to invest in. Your expertise, your experience and your choices compounded over time and invested in your business really ought to bring you value and in a measurable period of time. After all, what wouldn't a dying man spend? for a little bit more time. To paraphrase Mark Twain, by time, they're not making any more of that either. With time and value in mind, Thor and his investor partners are interested in hearing from SME business owners who would like to look at a managed exit of their business in order to realize some value and create more time. Time that they can then invest on the many other things that matter in life. Your first step to more valuable time please connect with Thor at linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt or email him at info at Thorholt.com and set up a phone call. Uh, so to connect with Thor on LinkedIn, that's linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt or you can email him on info at Thorholt.com. All right, now let's go over to Will Jones with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones, PhD, editor of the Daily Skeptic, of course, and we have a very interesting mix of stories this week. Let's kick off with this. Silicon Valley Bank is just the latest victim of the lockdowns, Will. That's right, Nick. Yeah, so we've uh, we've been hearing about credit credit fees this week, um, but uh, earlier we had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, of course, and Professor of Economics Christian Parenti uh, wrote a piece in the Grey Zone where he explained that the collapse of uh, SVB was, in fact, to do with the lockdowns. He says that at the heart of the crisis um, is the gigantic pile of low interest debt that was issued during the height of the pandemic. And he says that while private sector pandemic era debt like corporate bonds also soared, US government debt like treasury bonds piled up. He says that the government issued enormous amounts of extremely low interest government debt, about $4.2 trillion of it. And now the interest rates are higher than they've been in 15 years, investors are dumping their old low interest debt. And as they dump it, the resale price of the old debt goes down. And of course, the more it declines, the more people want to dump it. And that's what generates and drives the panic. So I don't know if you may not have understood all of that. I don't know if I entirely understand all of the economics uh, arguments from The Economist, but you can certainly see how all this huge cheap debt and with the interest rates going up is causing real problems, real tremors in the banks and that the lockdowns, yet, yet more harm from lockdowns. We wondered how is it that we could effectively try and turn off the economy for, for months or even years from 2020, as though we could put it into hibernation, as though, and, and there not be a huge consequence of that. How did that happen? How was that possible? Well, it turns out, oh, well, of course, we know there were lots of negative consequences from it, but economically, people seem to be doing okay. But it turns out, as many pointed out, that this was just delaying and deferring the harm uh, through the illusion created by 
debt and low interest rates. So economists pointing out that this is yet another negative consequence, harm, uh, catastrophe, if you like, of the of the lockdowns, uh, but it was delayed. Uh, so uh, and now we're experiencing it now. Yeah, I think I very broadly understood it. If you, you shut everything down, but you carry on printing money, that causes in- inflation. That that that's my take. That, that's the basics, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. So let's do this one as well. Then Biden. This is very interesting. Biden orders U.S. intelligence to release all documents on COVID origins and any links to the Wuhan lab within 90 days. Bit of a turnaround here, Will, or is it? Yeah, so this was a, um, a Senator Josh Hawley who sponsored a bill uh, to ask the uh, White House to declassify um, any intelligence relating to uh, the origins of COVID. And that was surprisingly perhaps, but it was good to see that that, that bill was actually supported unanimously by the House and the Senate. So bipartisan, full, um, complete bipartisan support. Everyone in the in the legislature in America wanted this information, wants to know more about this. So that's that's a that's a good thing. That's 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 encouraging to hear. There was a worry that Biden might veto it out of national security concerns, but instead he has accepted it, with so many of the lawmakers wanting to back it and the public obviously wanting it as well. It's he's obviously decided that that this is the way to go. And uh, but he has said that uh, it will not be releasing it without uh, redactions for national security reasons. So uh, exactly how much will be revealed and how much will be redacted, we don't know. We can imagine that quite a lot will be redacted. So it's not clear yet how valuable um, this new information is going to be. But it will be very interesting to see what comes out of this. And in particular, one of the things to look out for is this famous uh, or infamous a uh, November 2019 intelligence briefing that was talked about in various news reports that we reported on the Daily Skeptic. And this has never been released. It's been talked about as being the information that the US intelligence claimed to have had in November 2019. So uh, before the pandemic was known about, before anyone uh, knew that it was going on, there were analysts uh, briefed the press later on saying that they had that they had spotted an outbreak in Wuhan, they'd spotted things going on, and they'd even briefed that they'd briefed NATO, they'd briefed uh, the Israeli Defense uh, Force. Uh, so this was this seemed to be a, a big thing, if you like, uh, at least to some analysts. Uh, but this report has never been released. Will this come out uh, with this release of information uh, from the intelligence, the US intelligence. We don't know, but we hope so. And and it will also be interesting to see what else comes out. However, the assumption is the Chinese and the Wuhan lab that is, is responsible for obvious reasons. That's where it's, that's Wuhan is where it was started or was first detected. Uh, but there's been no mention of what the US scientists might have been doing with the viruses, the involvement they might have had. We know that US scientists and officials have been heavily involved with the gain-of-function uh, research around these viruses. How much of that will be redacted? How much of that will come out? We don't know, and that remains to be seen. It'll be very interesting to see how redacted the document is. I suspect it'll just be the word lab, loads of black marks, then not bat. That's probably all we'll get, something like that. Because, uh, yeah, like you say, in the piece, it, we, they don't want to release anything that makes them look bad. So it'll only be if it makes China look bad. But let's crack on and do this one. This one kind of infuriated me, though I sort of felt sort of vindicated but infuriated. I didn't know how to feel really well. It was It's mask rage man who hit victim in head with pole for not wearing a face mask is jailed. 
Yeah, this is this is an awful um, story to see that the mask rage that uh, that this person had, and this this must be. I mean, it, hopefully it'll be one of the worst examples, but it can't be the only the the only one. I'm sure. Um, a, a Norwich City youth football coach hit a man in the head with a metal pole for not wearing a COVID mask in McDonald's in June 2021. So if you remember, that was when there was all the fear around the Delta variant uh, coming out of India. It had had caused a lot of reported uh, excess deaths, COVID deaths in India, and was uh, was now in the UK and further afield. So there was a lot of fear at that point, despite everyone being vaccinated, of course. Um, And there was a lot of pressure, renewed social pressure to do all kinds of things, get vaccinated, wear masks. And and we were still, uh, the lockdown, sorry, Freedom Day had been had been delayed by a month at that point in June. It had been delayed by another uh, several weeks uh, due to the Delta variant. So uh, lots of so it was a very it was a very fraught time. But you know this is not is certainly not to excuse this um, this behaviour. It's just re- reminding uh, listeners of the the social context that was going on at that in June 2021. And so this man he became enraged in a queue for food at McDonald's. Uh, by a group of four people who weren't wearing face coverings. The report says after becoming increasingly irate, uh, the man, 29-year-old, went back to his car where he found a metal pole and returned to attack one of the men. Well, the story now, the reason this is back in the news is because this man, uh, Connor Murphy, has been jailed for two years and eight months uh, for this attack. Uh, So it's, it's good that it's, as you would expect, an assault like that has has received a penalty. But it's also a reminder that this propaganda and this social pressure does have real real consequences it it makes people think crazy ways do crazy things and because and in some cases uh, become violent we hear a lot about the the harm um, of of harmful speech which obviously we don't generally go in for uh, but um, but it's certainly to be it needs to be said that propaganda that encourages fear in the population and encourages people to stigmatize other people because they're not conforming to a certain you know mask wearing certain behaviors can in a few cases have some pretty some pretty awful and le- and uh, not in this case lethal but but it can do uh, consequences so yeah disturbing story good that he's been jailed yeah what it says also in the piece he he went and sat in his car for three minutes. Then got the the pole out the back, and then went and beat this guy. It's proper like Michael Douglas in falling down sort of stuff. And he also hit the part, the guy's partner in the wrist, I believe. And it's just disgusting. And I just think, I also think, where's my apology? Because I I knew someone at the time. It was meant to be a friend who said I deserve months of suffering for not wearing a mask. And this was June twenty one. This guy did this, as you said. There was worries about a variant, but this is well. This is a year into it. This is when surely it's in, it's in the summer as well. Surely where people realize a mask is not going to do anything in mcdonald's in the summer in 2021 it made me so angry this yeah but they, they were but they didn't know because that's not what they were told by the authorities i'm not excusing people but that the government and the fear the fear porn that they put out um and the propaganda they put out about masks um and, and everything you know everything around the pandemic is needs to be blamed as well as individuals yeah um because uh, because that, that's what that's where they get these ideas from. You know, we we read we read the studies. We know that you know we know the facts and the science around it. But these people, most people in the country, they just they just believe what the government and the BBC and whatever tells them. So, yeah, I don't. I've never known the facts and the science. I I just do the opposite. I just don't believe the government and go with. That's what Scott Adams <laughs> calls a, a basic heuristic. I do, I just go with my gut that says no. This is this is nonsense. But yeah, you're right. I mean. Piers Morgan has just has just backtracked and said, "Look, the science told me this. This is why I was shouting at everyone because the scientists told me this." So yeah, I get your point. You can certainly blame that to an extent, but you've also got to take personal agency. So a bit of both. Um, 
you want to move on and do yep. these Dutch farmers? This is a bit of a, a win for once. Dutch farmers protest party opposing green policies celebrate shock election win. Yeah, amazing this. Amazing story of triumph over green ideology. The Dutch government has been taking some really drastic radical a- action based in climate fears, climate alarmism against, against well, in lots of ways, but against farmers in particular. Uh, that the government's uh, plans to meet EU climate targets were implemented by reducing reducing livestock, farm animals, uh, and through compulsory farm buyouts. And the aim was, uh, interestingly, to reduce nitrogen emitted by manure and fertilisers. So it's interesting. An interesting aspect of this story is that um, it's not carbon dioxide that's the villain here. It's nitrogen emissions. And this isn't something that we hear very much about. Net zero, of course, refers to net zero carbon dioxide emissions. And yet here, it's all about these drastic uh, green actions are targeted another gas, nitrogen. Now, of course, the um, the air we breathe is the air around us is is what is it's nearly eighty uh, percent uh, nitrogen if, if memory serves. So this is nitrogen is most of the gas around us. It's the the majority of the uh, of the atmosphere is is nitrogen. So it's it's very interesting. I don't know. Uh, I'll com- I admit, uh, Nick, I need to look into it more. I don't know very much about this this drive to reduce uh, nitrogen emissions in particular. But it was an intriguing intriguing aspect. In any case. That's what uh, the government's been doing. But this, the story is that this, the farmers fought back and they had an amazing victory in this, uh, this election in the Netherlands. They won. They got equal largest party in the Senate, uh, taking fifteen seats from none before the vote. It's a protest party, uh, a farmers' citizen movement, and um, and amazing. And this will uh, make a big impact on Dutch politics and and should we hope uh, have a big impact. Uh, should reverberate around the world as politicians will look at this and will we hope they are ideologues so you never can be sure but we hope we'll learn lessons um, about what are the political consequences of pursuing radical draconian uh, extreme uh, green policies yeah and then just on your fact there you were right pretty much Earth's atmosphere is made up of approximately 78 percent nitrogen so well done will but that would be bad wouldn't it if nitrogen was suddenly bad and it, it was 78 percent of, <laughs> of the air yeah it, it, it might be some other form of nitrogen um rather than N, n2 it might be nitrogen oxides or something so, uh, we'll have to look up uh, what's got what, it'd be something for us to look into but what what is this nitrogen worry yeah it's uh interesting. that'll be next week five five pieces on nitrogen yeah. um but it is an important story with the Dutch farmers and, and they're trying to destroy them with their globalist nonsense. Let's do um, one last story. And this we covered this on Headliners last night. This is a big story in all the papers. Latest UN climate doom report falsely claims global temperatures are highest for 125,000 years. That's from Chris, our environment editor at The Daily Skeptic. Yeah, the, so the, the re- really, as usual, ramping up the United Nations, the IPCC, ramping up the alarm again, unrelenting, don't even as temperatures pause, pause they've been paused for, uh, for what is it now, 10 years nearly. Um, no significant increase in global temperatures, according to uh, the satellite measurements. Uh, but this doesn't seem to, this doesn't seem to ever affect anything that they do. In fact, they the, the more the evidence points away from an emergency, the more that the the politicians and the UN seem to ramp up the alarm as as though they're as though they're inversely related. And so here we have uh, the United Nations Director Secretary General, who has said that countries need to bring forward 
their net zero targets by 10 years as though 2050 was not un- was not unrealistic and damaging enough we now have demands for it to be net zero by 2040 because otherwise we will well there'll be just there'll be more doom he says that humanity is on thin ice um he says and that uh, we are in we are, we are well you know this the usual stuff that we we have to do it now point of no return if we don't if we don't do it if we don't uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions to zero within within the next year then we're going to, we're all going to die that that kind of thing uh, so chris has written uh, an excellent piece uh, for the daily skeptic uh, well worth checking out where he's uh, looked at one claim in particular that the the ipcc the report says that the current global temperatures are the highest they claim for 125,000 years, uh, which uh, Chris says is an an astonishing claim given the many scientific surveys that show much higher temperatures in the recent past. And he he links to several, including one which showed that uh, just a few thousand years ago in the Alps, temperatures were up to 7 degrees warmer than the uh, than the present we don't exactly know why of course but then that's part of the point isn't it that we don't fully understand we actually have very little understanding of the way of what drives changes in the climate but one thing that seems clear it does not seem to be the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere does not appear to be in any way the control knob that turns the temperature of the earth up and down which is of course the mainstream net zero theory and there's just very little evidence for that and this is yet more of that uh, there's yet more of that evidence claims that we are the hottest we've ever been in or not ever been in 125,000 years um, and yet that's not what the studies that's not what the science really shows yeah and just as a layman what what makes me suspicious is the politics that they sneak in there so this guy Ho Sung Lee who was chair of this intergovernmental panel on climate change. He said the IPCC report clearly show that humanity has the know-how and technology to tackle human-induced climate change. But not only that, they show that we have the capacity to build a much more prosperous, inclusive and equitable society in the process. So they snuck in the little bit of uh, well, communism there. Well, that's what they really care about, though, isn't it? It's, uh, James Dellingpole talks about them being, and others talk about them being watermelons, green on the outside, but red on the inside. Yes. And, and, and we see an, an awful lot of that. And you've got to suspect that a lot of these people involved in, in this climate alarmism, they see the the so-called climate emergency to, to, to really be an excuse to to generate um, a global emergency because in a state of emergency you can you can do things and induce people to do things they wouldn't do if they thought everything was hunky-dory um, and therefore to push through this uh, radical far left really um, quasi-marxist agenda of you know all the buzzwords inclusivity equ- equity equality you know reparations all of that all of that kind of thing and global government of course that's them um, and control that's what we that's the common theme that we and see bugs. in the in the in the pandemic um with a global emergency of viruses and we've got the global emergency of climate you know just um or the global emergency of racism you know whatever there's just it's just whatever it is there's always there's always some reason why why they need to be in charge and telling us all uh, and micromanaging or everything that we say and do and think. Yeah, and it's funny that it comes when the uh, Greta Thunberg tweet is getting a lot of uh, uh, reshares and things on Twitter because in 2018, it was actually on this day that, well, on the 21st, sorry, of of June 2018, so we have exactly three months, she said a top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. So we've got three months to see if we're all wiped out 
and uh, Greta's prediction <laughs> comes true. They've been warning about that for decades, haven't they? But the 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 the, te- the temperature is never quite is never exactly backed up their uh, their wild warnings. Nope. Oh, and the, another just before we finish, uh, Nick, uh, another interesting tidbit that uh, that Chris picked up on was that this report, this alarm alarmist report, was supposed to come out ahead of the COP twenty seven uh, last year, uh, but it's it's five months late. It's it's uh, it's many months late, uh, basically because the writers and the scientists uh, went on strike for a few months. Um, and that's alluded to in the minutes. It was such an urgency for them this uh, this this hugely urgent report urging us all to take extremely urgent action it was so urgent for them that they that they just went on strike for reasons that are unknown who knows what it was what the what the what the cause was to and and refused to write it for for several months so um yeah. it obviously wasn't more important than whatever it was they were uh, they were striking yeah, political about. action takes precedence yet again oh well i think we've uh, nailed them um that was good some interesting stories there well and we'll catch up with you again next week well thanks nick All right, well, that was Will. And now let's go to Peak Woke. So, Toby, this is probably a bumper Peak Woke, but uh, there's there's a few good ones. I know you've got some good ones as well. I thought I'd maybe start with this Drew Barrymore thing. I I don't know if you followed this. It was Drew Barrymore and Dylan Mulvaney, that very strange person who does trans stuff and gets to meet Joe Biden in the White House. And they sort of had this bizarre moment on Drew Barrymore's show where they they sat together, they ended up kneeling together and just talking about the beauty of womanhood or something or other. And I said that uh, South Park could have just just posted it as it was with just 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 do the drawing because it was just you could it could have it was like verbatim South Park. It was so bizarre and weird. And then later in the week, this Dylan Mulvaney had another video pretending to be a six year old, basically as far as I could see, a six year old girl sort of just sort of jumping around and being like and saying claiming to be sick and he's just like this stuff is so sick and weird and this person has been to the white house why is this garbage being promoted did you follow any of this uh, yeah you yeah, know i i saw the um i saw the the pictures of um a drew barrable kneeling kind of seemingly prostrating herself at the feet of this kind of trans goddess um and um I think I was sick in my throat. Um, it was it was pretty awful. Um, there were some good memes as well about women. The sort of old adverts from the fifties or, like, or whatever. Women sort of, you know, giving their husband like a breakfast in bed or something, and and then now Drew Barrymore kneeling to a man and sort of saying how we've sort of we were still on top. Yeah, no, it was it was it was awful. Um, and you know, I don't think Drew Barrymore's got the memo that you know we've reached peak woke and it's time to move on. And, you know, try and get a part in Yellowstone. Forget about throwing yourself at the feet of these woke icons. You know, that was that's so 2022. Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't think I don't think she's got that moment. Did you have a, a one you want to go for, Toby? Well, I was going to mention, obviously, um, Great Expectations. So there's a forthcoming BBC One um, adaptation of Great Expectations. And um, uh, it has, according to the BBC, a strong anti-colonial message which is a slightly odd one because um, uh, there isn't much. Um, I mean, I think, as I recall, Great Expectations is entirely set um, in England um, in the mid-19th century. So um, a bit odd to kind of graft on an anti-colonial theme. I suppose the um, the, the, the uh, 
convict who Pip meets um, in the opening scene is transported to Australia. So I suppose there is a kind of, you know, there is a colonial dimension to the story. Um, But I'm not quite sure how you kind of um, shoehorn in a strong anti-colonial message into this uh, book. And I was pretty annoyed by it because um, uh, it's one of my favorite. I mean, I love Charles Dickens and it's one of my favorite of Dickens's novels. Um, And so to see it kind of desecrated in this way, um, uh, harnessed to some ghastly decolonialist political agenda is um, pretty upsetting. Um, but I guess I'll just give it a body swerve. Yeah, I remember it. I remember Mag Witch. I remember reading it. I, and I don't remember any any uh, anti-colonial stuff being in there. Yeah, absolutely bizarre, but nothing surprising these days. I thought I'd maybe get myself in trouble and do this one as a peak woke. Adidas team up with Muslim hiking group this Ramadan to make the countryside more inclusive. So they've gone to the Peak District and included signs to Mecca. And there's like prayer mats out there and all kinds of things. And it's this idea that the the countryside is not Muslim enough or something. And what really bothers me about this is, it's not my description, but this is in the article in the Metro. And and somebody is quoted here saying that... um, People from ethnic minority backgrounds valued the natural environment of the countryside, but felt excluded in what was seen as an exclusively English environment. And this just shows the complete failure of multiculturalism and integration. The fact that you're sort of seeing yourself as not English. I mean, people are welcome to to, to assimilate and become English, as we know. But basically, it's people saying we're not English. We never will see ourselves as English, presumably. Certainly not yet. And and we don't really like Englishness. And what, what is wrong? So one, it's a failure of integration. And two... What is wrong with England and things being exclusively English? I mean, shouldn't things in England be exclusively English, just as things in Japan are exclusively Japanese? I mean, you're in England. <laughs> I mean, what is wrong with that? I, 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 this idea you've got to basically, we're talking about anti-colonizing. This is, this, isn't this a kind of con- colonizing of everything? If, what is, why can't some things in England be English? That's what I'm saying. But in, in one sense, Nick, I mean, of course, I, 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 get, I get where you're coming from. Um, uh, which is what I say to my children when they <laughs> go on a bit of a rant about something. <laughs> Have to acknowledge their feelings, um, validate their feelings. Um, but uh, in a, in a sense, couldn't you argue that that you know putting prayer mats in the middle of the English countryside, including a sign? You know, there's a signpost to Poundbury. There's a signpost to Little Snoring, and there's a signpost to Mecca. I mean, it's sort of quintessentially English, isn't it? I mean, there's you know your your version of Englishness. Is is a kind of Englishness as you'd like it to be, um, uh, but actually, you know, we are in many ways a kind of self-flagellating nation, bending over backwards to make amends for our colonial past and to make all these different ethnic groups feel welcome. That is who we are. That is the modern day English, isn't it? I see your argument that the, the self-hating is part of England. It's a kind of uh... <laughs> It's a bit of sophistry, I think, but um, and, and and crucially, this is not what I'm saying. They are saying that it's not they don't they don't feel English and they hate that the countryside is exclusive or, or feel bad that it's exclusively English. So I'm not making some racist comment. I'm just taking them on on, on what they're saying. And it's like, you know, that's the strangeness of the language. If it was just sort of, I don't know. I, I see your point though. Your argument's quite funny, but yeah, I mean, I I I, I, I have to say I haven't really grasped the um woke complaint that that the countryside is inherently racist and we need to decolonize it i mean a tree is a tree a tulip is a tulip i mean 
how can how can you kind of racialize nature? It does seem kind of a, a sort of odd front to kind of open up another kind of battle on. Um, I know. And it does make them just seem completely ridiculous, doesn't and it? And the idea that everyone has to do everything, like, oh, there's not enough black people in the countryside. Well, maybe they don't want to go. I mean, you know, I mean I'm mean, i from the country. I've left. <laughs> I've come down to London. I mean, it's quite wet. And if you've been at the lakes, it's quite wet. It's good for a couple of days. Then you're like, I'm soaked and there's nothing to do. I mean... Yeah, it's sort of... It, it is. It's a, it's a favourite woke um, argument, isn't it, to say... Black people, people of colour are underrepresented in this particular area. What's the explanation? It must be because, must be racism. You know, uh, that's the reason there aren't more black people in the country, because the countryside is racist and we need to decolonize the countryside. It's sort of denying agency, isn't it, to people of colour? As you say, maybe they just completely voluntarily totally uncoerced uh, without thinking that if they go to the countryside they'll feel victimized in virtue of being black they just don't want to go because as you say it's wet it's muddy um it's uh, kind of smelly um you know <laughs> loads of people don't want to go to the countryside for perfectly understandable reasons and if you choose not to you know that that, that people should respect those choices exactly so we're the non-racist they're the racist we win and um, do you want to do another peak work toby uh, yeah, well, I was going to just. Um, I think there's been a lot of a lot of, the, the, a lot of coverage of um, Oxfam's 92-page uh, inclusive language guide, um, and um, again, it's it's an example, I think, of kind of grotesque woke overreach. So you know, it advises um, Oxfam staff um, not to use you know um, uh, gendered words like mother, but to replace them with you know pregnant person um, and. Um, uh, you can't say headquarters because that has a kind of uh, colonial implications um, and is hierarchical. Um, uh, and um, you can't use the word father. Uh, and it, 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 but, but the really, the, probably the kind of uh, the headline grabbing claim is that it denounces the English language, which it describes as the language of a colonizing nation. It's quite extraordinary that um, that Oxfam, of all charities, should kind of um, jump on this woke bandwagon and, you know, um, uh, depict the English as this oppressive colonizing nation that Oxfam has to apologize for. What about apologizing for all the Oxfam staffers that supposedly predated on um, miners um, in places like the Democratic Republic of, what was it, um, uh, Congo, um, and uh, before that in H Haiti. Um, uh, you know, Oxfam has been embroiled in a number of pretty unsavory scandals over the past few years. And each time it's embroiled in one of these scandals, the British government says, okay, for a the next three years or whatever it is, you can't apply for British government funding. You know, you have to sort out these problems, make sure that your workers aren't predating on children. Um, and um, uh, and the moment, I think in November, Oxfam, finally, the ban, the latest ban is lifted. It is able to apply to what the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office for funding um, and then it immediately denounces, you know, the English language um, as the language of a colonizing nation. I mean, so it does seem like it's shooting itself in the foot. Um, but I think the really the really kind of self-sabotaging thing about this is surely and Oxfam have been doing this for years. You know, they, they, they unashamedly, 
uninhibitedly leftist organization constantly having a go at you know the tory government at capitalism at colonizing nations at the west and it's like isn't that gonna why are you doing that don't you want people of all political persuasions and none to kind of shop in oxfam shops to give money to oxfam shouldn't you be concentrating on you know your core purpose which is to alleviate poverty in far-flung parts of the world um why are you politicizing your organization in such a way that is bound to lead to declining revenues it just seems completely incomprehensible yeah, and uh, I did a piece in The Daily Skeptic or covered a piece from Andrew Neil, who was very good on this. Very bad on vaccines, but very good on, on this. Yeah, the Oxfam thing, totally ridiculous. One more quick contender, I've just remembered, is this one from Dove, the soap company, who were talking about fat appropriation. So someone was talking about the whale, the Brendan Fraser film, oh, yeah. and tweeted, so disappointing that the whale won the Oscar for best hair and makeup. Fat suits are harmful. They are not your opportunity to win awards. Our identity is not your costume. Cast fat actors to play fat characters. I think this was real. And then Dove replied, stop giving fat suit awards. We want better representation in Hollywood. Let's hashtag let's change beauty. And somewhere someone mentioned the phrase fat appropriation. So this is what we have now. Pretty peak woke. I mean, the listener can decide. There was not many weak pokes this week. There was a lot of peak wokes. I don't know which one the best was. Probably the Oxford. Yeah, I, I, I meant to bring up the um, James Whale Oscar in our last show, actually, and say, hang on a second, you know, if... Um, straight people are no longer allowed to play gay people. If um, a cis actor can't play a trans actor, how can a thin person play a fat person? Isn't that you know unacceptable cultural appropriation? If if Brendan Fraser hasn't had the lived experience of a fatty, how can he convincingly play one? Um, uh, and it's, it is remarkable that that is the kind of the last woke frontier, at least in Hollywood. You can still win an Oscar wearing a fat suit, but I, I would have thought not for much longer. That'll be on its way out. And just for the listener, you did, you did say briefly there the James Whale Oscar, which is the, the DJ, the uh, the talk show host as well. It's Brendan so, Fraser in The Whale. You just kind of so, admitted it. I mixed that up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Brendan Fraser in The Whale. Yeah. But, um, no no offense intended towards James Whale. Yes. I'm a, a long-standing or, fan. Or of. to fat suits or fat people or anything. Um, all right, that was peak woke. And um, I'm going to step out, Toby, because I think hopefully we're honored yet again to be joined by our hero, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Yes, it's great to have you back, Dr. Peterson. Um, and we have a couple of questions this week, one from a listener and one from me. Um, but we'll start with the listener's question, which is, do you regret not opposing any of the tyrannical lockdown policies that swept the Western world three years ago. I know that more recently you have begun to condemn the lockdowns and other aspects of the pandemic response, um, but you were quite late to the party. Do you regret that? Well, I get this question a lot, from mainly from trolls who have dark triad personality traits and even dark tetrad, which is, which is psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism and a propensity to have too much Russian art in your apartment. But anyways, I also get it from serious people. And it's a pretty serious question because at the time I was ill with one of my autoimmune diseases that don't exist. And I went to a Russian hospital where I, because that's the only thing you can do if you have an autoimmune disease is to take massive amounts of amphetamine and go to a Russian hospital and have nightmares about Gogol and bloody Pushkin. So... I was in a pretty frail state at the time, and I took the vaccine, not realizing that it was a Bill Gates plan to 
insert microchips in our skin and force us to eat Bill Gates's synthetic meat, which is one of the worst things you can do because meat is one of the best things. And so synthetic meat by that logic is one of the worst. So you could say meat is God and synthetic meat is Satan in some sense. Anyways, I miss most of the pandemic. So I, I, I was, I was out of it and it's not an excuse, but I was in a Russian hospital having hallucinations about Ivan Turgenev when I should have been focusing on. And what was extra makes me feel especially guilty is that so many people had to carry on during the pandemic, like the men in the high-vis jackets who I've spoken about before, and I get emotional because they keep the infrastructure going and, and they work on the phone lines at night and they have names like Gary and Steve. And uh, so I do feel some regret for, for, for spending my time in a Russian hospital uh, thinking about Tolstoy in a kind of uh, semi-hallucinatory state instead of focusing on the pandemic. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. Um, so uh, this is a question from me. I'm currently trying to lose weight. And would you recommend your somewhat eccentric, high-protein diet? And doesn't a diet of pure meat become a bit boring after a bit? Don't you crave vegetables? Well, it's a pretty complicated question. I mean, you've called my diet eccentric, but isn't it eccentric to eat vegetables, which are essentially a poison from nature that can't, can't be digested by humans who have evolved to only eat meat? And I found once I ate meat, my life completely turned around. I had a lot more money and I looked better. And obviously I couldn't go to the bathroom for 24 days, but <laughs> it's, it swings and roundabouts, I believe, is the British expression. Because, well, so my diet is exclusively meat, as we've discussed at length. And I eat lamb shanks and beef for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And sometimes <laughs> salt as an accompaniment, but never anything else. Because I once accidentally ate a, a piece of uh, lettuce and I couldn't sleep for six weeks. And uh, as I spoke about on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Anyways, my advice to lose weight is eat exclusively meat. And you won't be able to go to the bathroom for several weeks, but then you'll go to the hospital in Russia or anywhere and get a massive enema. And then you'll immediately lose about two stones. I, I believe you phrase it in, in Great Britain. So that's, that's the meat enema diet. And it's gonna, it will be the subject of my new book coming out, which is about Carl Jung and how he only ate meat. And that's called <laughs> the Carl Jung archetypal meat diet available soon from a random house. So I hope that helps. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. That's uh, extremely helpful. I'm going to try it out. All right. Well, that was uh, Dr. John Peterson with some useful diet advice this week. I might follow some of that myself. Toby, what, what is your diet plan? Well, I, I have been trying to keep the carbs fairly low. So uh, what I call the 3B diet, no biscuits, no booze, no bread. Um, and I've been doing okay on the biscuit and bread front, the booze front, not so well. <laughs> yeah, you've just been maylighting booze every day. Vodka <laughs> in the morning, bottle of vodka with your uh, with your lamb shank. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've gone completely off the rails into just a sort of a sort of just chocolate mousse degeneracy of just it's horrendous. I've had a lot of weird things. I've had my throat issue, which luckily I'm not dying. It turns out, but uh, thank thank God for private health care. I've got Booper now, 
So I just uh, just call them up most days. <laughs> and just, uh, yeah, I've got this weird thing where I feel like there's something there when I'm swallowing, but apparently it's nothing. It might be acid. Too much information for the listener, really. It might be inflammation, but it might just be nothing. But the good news is I'm not dying. Uh, so now I can... Ion Bupa's special hypochondriac plan, which is it's like so a thousand pounds a week. It's so good. I mean, I can't say enough about private healthcare. I know it's quite on brand for this podcast, but it's, <laughs> it's so good. You can actually, I didn't realize that you can call, I mean, I've got it with work for the first time ever. You can get a GP in like 30 yeah. minutes on the phone. And then some days you can get a private yeah. consultation on the day. So for someone like me with crippling health anxiety, you can just, you can just be seen in a day. It's so good. And that'd be really yeah. the guy shoved the camera so far up my nose, my eyes watered. It's great. It's so thorough. And I just I can imagine though, they, 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 if they actually found something wrong with you, I might say, Mister Dixon, you were on our hypochondriac plan, which is obviously at a reduced rate because um, hypochondriacs are never actually ill. Uh, but we actually found something wrong with you, so we may have to put you on our normal yeah, plan I'm now. Too, I'm too hypochondriac to even consider it. But I am now going, and perhaps I shouldn't talk about this so publicly i'm now actually going to therapy for my health anxiety because it's been so bad so i'm hoping that you won't have to hear my tales of of illness as much toby because i've got this thing i've had people in my life die of certain illnesses from an early age and i always just think i'm dying and it goes in this cycle then i have to go and it's a classic thing you go and see someone then you feel better then the next thing you think you're dying again and it's kind of got to like life ruining levels we should be sponsored by Booper. I've just realized there's no reason for this section That's true. to be in the show. I, I, I'm a member. I'm a member of Booper too, and I love the fact that you can get the kind of you can get the appointment with the GP online um, uh, really, really quickly. It's so good. It's like I just realized there's no reason for that section to be in, except as a free ad for Booper. <laughs> so sign up now, guys. Just mention the Weekly Skeptic <laughs> at the checkout. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, God bless private healthcare. That's all I can say. The NHS doesn't really work. God bless the NHS as well. They do their bit, but you know, if you, for people who are who just have mental health problems. We need to get answers quickly, guys. I should have had it years ago. It's not even that expensive, is it? Anyway. Is your, is your therapy for hypochondria, is that is that um, on Booper? Great question. Is that, is that included in your plan? The guy said Booper on the website, but it turned out he's, he was wrong on his own website. So uh. he suckered me in thinking he was Booper. And now he's kind of quite near and he seems quite good. So I'm thinking about just going with him and just spending my own money now because I have to do something about it. And I'm not even opening the can of worms of the rest of my personality and focus on the health anxiety, I could easily focus on any number of other mental problems. Well, I, I, where, where you might fall down um, if you do try and put your therapy on Booper is that it might be classified as a pre-existing condition. So a condition you had when you first joined Booper, and it's quite difficult to insure, particularly if you don't declare them. And they may look at they may they may look at some of your stand-up comedy on YouTube dating back, you know, ten years and. They, these problems clearly pre-existed you taking out this plan. I heard that our Booper does even include pre-existing conditions. I have to check it, but I heard okay. it. So, I mean, okay. I'm going to be rinsing this Booper. To, I mean, this is <laughs> till I get sat from GB. It's going to be Booper every day for me. Just absolutely love it. But hopefully this guy can fix my brain. And maybe then I'll move on to my considerable other problems of just, you know, crippling depression and anxiety, Toby. I mean, <laughs> we could do that. You, you told Co- me, Cognitive oh, behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, well, we might do a bit of that. And I'll come back a different person. Imagine that. I could be a completely different person on this podcast. But hey, actually, I mean, someone said the other day, I said, I was replying to a tweet saying, no, no, I'll never be happy. Someone said, you know, sorry, you were unhappy. I can't remember what it was. But then someone replied, well, you make other people happy. Maybe that's enough. I'll just be unhappy my whole life, but I'll make other people happy. What, what, if, um, what if you discovered that um, if you were, if you became happier, you would, you would be less good at making other people happy. You'd become less funny. I mean, I often think that 
John Cleese was much funnier before he underwent, you know, an extensive kind of course of therapy and kind of confronted his demons, put them to bed uh, and became a much more balanced and kind of mentally healthy person and much less funny as a consequence. If that was the trade-off, what, what would, you, would you... I used to think that, Toby. If it was a trade-off, it's an interesting conundrum. What would you do? I think I'd, at this stage in my life, I would choose happiness. In the past, I would have chosen being talented or funny or something. Now I would just choose happiness. But I think I'm so far gone that it's just damage limitation. It's not going to happen. There's so much to work with there that there's so much, there's so many demons that it's actually going to be, you know, it's just like damage. It's, yeah, it's emergency level rather than sort of will I not be funny level. But yeah. Right. The only other thing I thought, because right. I have to try and get guests for my other podcast now, the current thing available on all platforms, is that um, I have to be kind of like nice and outgoing to get people to come onto my podcast. I thought that could change my whole personality. Just having to get podcast guests, I have to actually be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another theory but um toby should i read a couple of reviews I've, people probably heard enough about my health should i read a couple of reviews? yeah yeah so because we, we had that review last week didn't we which claimed it was too long even though it was brilliant that really ridiculous <laughs> review and so now people have been hitting back against this quite aggressively and someone's written old normal in fact has written the podcast is most definitely not too long in fact i wish it was longer nick toby and will are interesting and funny and they have a warm rapport which is so engaging Nick is modest and self-deprecating, which is completely charming. I didn't realize I was going to have to read that. But yeah, as you've said before, if I keep reading out bits about how self-deprecating I'm, How modest and self-deprecating yeah, you are. Yeah. Is it a problem? And someone else says, a Mad Gym Woman, this comes from. Thank you, Mad Gym Woman. And she says, better longer. Definitely not too long. Better, in fact, now it's over an hour. Most anticipated weekly podcast. And then it goes into a sort of diss on London Coin, which I don't particularly need to go into. So there was this one, <laughs> Nick, Toby, and Dr. P2, a firm favorite each week with Team James trainee Nick posting some good questions, sorry, posing some good questions to Toby to sharpen him up for the top J plus bonus of Dr. P most weeks too. That comes from Stuart Walton. They're saying that the whole podcast is just me training you up to deal with <laughs> James's questions. And I'm a kind of simultaneously a kind of James trainee to be Team James. What's this all about? <laughs> that's quite rude yeah it's ridiculous yeah. but we, we we appreciate you anyway and it was a five star review guys leave us a review it takes seconds to just click five stars on the apple app or whichever app you listen on if you want to go the extra mile and leave a review as well we very much appreciate them obviously they have to be gushing and completely hagiographical or i go completely mad but um thank you so much for your reviews so subscribe like share tell a friend about the podcast if you like it we are growing very fast so some of you must have been doing that but please tell a friend if you like the podcast and Toby, is there anything you would like to add? Yeah, well, just to say that um, last week's podcast was the first one ever uh, to pass the 15,000 downloads barrier. So that's great. Um, uh, uh, so thank you to everyone who's been downloading, listening, recommending it to your friends and giving us good reviews. Um, yeah, it's Britain's fastest growing podcast. Yeah, and that's not bad. I don't like to give them the exact figures, but that's not bad for a podcast that's only on 29 episodes and that was in a week. That's that's just in in the first week it hit that, and now it's going to go to even more than that. So that's not bad in a, in a week. Yeah, I got the uh, uh, in the US, and it may be the bar's lower here, but in the US, if you get fifteen thousand downloads, that puts you in the top four percent of podcasts. And if you get over twenty thousand, that puts you in the top two percent. Wow. Uh, so I imagine we're probably in the top two percent in the UK already with fifteen thousand. Wow, that's that is amazing. I didn't know that. That's huge, huge, as Trump would say. Well, thank you for your support. I mean, it, yeah, and we're going to be doing exciting things in the future. We're going to do a locals probably if I can get get it together. We're going to be doing all kinds of things. We've got the live show sometime <laughs> that's coming up at some point. 
and obviously go to dailyskeptic.org as well. And uh, yeah, we need we need one central place people can just donate in a way, don't we? But for now, it's dailyskeptic.org, isn't it? Because yeah. we don't have all our yeah. other bits of pieces. And you've got to well, go. We're going we're gonna, to set up a, a dedicated locals uh, weekly skeptic page. And people who like this podcast and want to donate to this podcast will be able to become premium subscribers and they get all sorts of perks. They may even be able to see a video of our conversation instead of just having to listen to it. Yeah, and we're thinking about maybe a monthly Zoom call, maybe a, a, an extra little bonus episode where we get really off the rails and just disgusting. So many ideas, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out and it'll be, I expect it'll be awesome. So, all right, thanks for listening. And until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.